You're listening to the Root Causing Health Podcast. I'm Nick Andre, and together with my partner Nathan Owens, we are delving deep into the science to answer the question, what causes chronic disease? We'll cover the basics, talk about our hypotheses, and bring you the best guests from around the medical and research community. If you like what we have here, please join us over at rootcausinghealth.com, where you'll find our blog and other resources. You can also support us on Patreon to fund our research and get early access to all of our content. Welcome to the uh, episode three of our foundation series. Uh, for those just joining us in our first episode, we covered the lipid hypothesis and why it doesn't really make any sense. The second episode covered a lot of key observations in cardiovascular disease that we want to be able to explain. And you'll notice that we are doing this from our new uh, Root Causing Health video studio in the back room of my apartment. So uh, I'm very excited to be in video form now. And in this episode, we'll cover the endotoxin hypothesis and articulate how it explains the key observations of atherogenesis, myocardial infarction, and quite possibly every other mysterious chronic disease of a kind of unknown or vague etiology, which is most of them at this point. So medicine tends to apply pluricausality, uh, which is the idea that everything causes a disease magically together somehow to just about every unknown disease. Uh, I'll again reiterate uh, that I despise that concept and think it destroys meaningful progress in medicine and research. This line of thinking would uh, lead us to conclude that not running, alcohol deficiency, dog deficiency, marriage, and money deficiency are all like causes of atherogenesis because each associates with the disease. The question I would ask is, how could we invalidate the possibility that a yet-to-be-discovered cause drives all of chronic disease? You might say that sounds rhetorical and you would be 100% correct. I haven't found a way that we could actually do that. We could actually invalidate that idea. So therefore, Occam's razor kind of slashes in and we, we should probably do a bit of digging to see what all these diseases have in common. Associations between all these diseases, like say the universal association of these diseases with chronic low levels of immune activation during otherwise healthy periods might guide us towards the upstream cause. So to recap, atherosclerosis is a fundamentally immunological disease. Uh, that statement is not very controversial. Uh, even those who are in favor of the LDL hypothesis attempt to juxtapose the LDL hypothesis against the immune hypothesis by trying to argue that LDL itself is responsible for the inflammation, which leads to constant discussion of foam cells, uh, a phrase so whipped out so often in the scientific literature that it can lead to boredom. Um. It may occur to you that a lipoprotein drives inflammation model doesn't really make a lot of sense, perhaps because lipoproteins are endogenously synthesized and the, the entire job of the immune system is to have a very high specificity between endogenous and foreign substances, or perhaps because the macrophages and early xanthomatous lesions aren't in particularly pro-inflammatory states. And it may also occur to you that we have a whole kind of slew of black swans in the lean mass hyperresponder community who have very high serum concentrations of LDL at the same time as very low levels of inflammation markers like, like Nathan. Yep. So the key here is to obviously explain the immune act activation. Uh, Gabor Ordosi has suggested that we stop using the word inflammation and instead say immune activation. And I think that that's probably a good move because inflammation tends to be a buzzword that comes out of places like goop. 
uh, for things like detox diets, uh, where people kind of destroy their kidneys and other organs by consuming ridiculous quantities of green spinach smoothies and things like that. And we want to be able to distinguish between science and quackery as best as we can. Which is the reason uh, why uh, Nathan cringes whenever I use the word toxin instead of endotoxin, so I am formally apologizing for that. Modern medicine has several key terms associated with inflammation, namely uh, autoimmune disease, which is used to describe inflammation that kind of arises out of nowhere. Occam's razor might suggest the hypothesis that all autoimmune diseases are driven, you know, not by a magical feedback loop from some yet-to-be-understood endogenous train wreck, but by endotoxemia and the, the metabolic dysfunction that arises from an incompatible diet. Likewise, the term Chronic inflammation gets tossed around a lot, but being a cynic, I read the, the phrase chronic inflammation as we don't know what we are talking about inflammation. And for those who will immediately question why I might disagree with the mainstream medical opinion on this topic, this is reinforced by the fact that a lot of these immunological discoveries, particularly the mechanisms of the innate immune system, have only been discovered within the past three decades. Uh, and as we all know, medicine kind of behaves more like the Titanic trying to steer clear of an iceberg than kind of a nimble engineering process capable of revising hypotheses to explain the latest observations that contradict dogma. And as we've mentioned, most texts on the infectious and inflammatory basis of atherosclerosis will mention endotoxins and that they activate the innate immune system, but they say so exactly once and rarely go into further detail, which is exactly what Velikin did as well. Uh, most papers in the book we got called The Inflammatory and Infectious Basis of Atherosclerosis do the same thing. They all jump right into the role of lipoproteins in inflammation and a menagerie of feedback loop hypotheses without really diving in on endotoxins. So uh, before we explore the hypothesis, I will admit that I forgot a few things in Foundations 2. So first, I, I neglected to mention the key term coronary vasospasm, the process whereby coronary vessels can spasm to produce a reduction in blood flow or other hemodynamic instability. This is part of the electrical control system of the heart and identifying the mechanisms which can cause coronary vasospasm and its role in myocardial infarctions is quite interesting. An interesting note was that Ivor Cummins recently interviewed Dr. Engstetten on this, his podcast, who mentioned uh, the very interesting tidbit that they have a case study where they identified that gluten seemed to precipitate a coronary vasospasm and angina in one of their patients. Unfortunately, he didn't go into any more detail, but uh, it piqued Nathan's curiosity last week. And then last episode, we also touched on the role of plaque rupture, and this week turned up a new pathologist via an LDL fan on Twitter. Uh, his name was MJ Davies, and he spent a good deal of time investigating the role of plaque rupture in atherogenesis and talking about the role of so-called unstable plaque in the pathogenesis of coronary events like a myocardial infarction. I read one of his papers this week, which was definitely worth a look, called The Pathophysiology of Acute Coronary Syndromes, published in the journal Heart in 2000. He was an excellent photographer, and the paper includes some of the best pictures I've seen of plaque instability and rupture. He had the, the following quote, Plaque rupture, like endothelial erosion, is a reflection of enhanced inflammatory activity within the plaque. In, in case that was in doubt, endothelial erosion is the other key mechanism in precipitating a thrombus capable of causing acute coronary events. This is again why I mentioned the possibility that a, a bingery or a particularly bad binge eating and drinking episode could precipitate a clinical event. Davies also noted sex differences in the frequency of plaque rupture versus endothelial erosion driving fatal thrombi. We will dive into the sex differences of atherosclerosis in a, in a future episode. 
if it's of interest. The female immune system differs in some key ways, apparently related to the need not to attack a fetus during pregnancy, and these differences seem to actually diminish after menopause, which was kind of interesting. Davies unfortunately died in 2003. This seems to be a trend with all these level-headed pathologists and that they're not around to answer questions anymore. We actually found a video of, uh, of him that we were trying to dig up by a medical film uh, crew at, out of Brooklyn, New York. I was actually in, in New York at the time and was debating trying to go over and bang on their door and see if we could get a, get a look at that because it seemed pretty interesting. I'd never seen a video of a pathologist actually working before. but Yeah, and moving on, uh, we wanted to touch on the progressive nature of atherosclerosis. Uh, as we noted last episode, Velikin's work put a maximum bound on the period of time required to form a lesion at one to three years. Uh, for a standard lesion, three to five years for a complicated lesion. I conversed with uh, Gregory Sloop, a living pathologist with a kind of a compelling alternative to the response to retention hypothesis of atherogenesis. Uh, we hope to have him on a, on a podcast to discuss his viewpoint. He argued that atherosclerosis is not actually a progressive disease at all, and that uh, a plaque simply represents a reincorporated thrombi. His viewpoint is essentially that atherosclerosis is not a progressive disease. Each plaque is formed by an acute event and kind of slowly heals. So in this fashion, different types of plaques are not precursors, but rather kind of more or less severe or different forms arising from a similar acute injury. I did ask him what he thought about gelatinous lesions, and he replied that he, he didn't really have an explanation and considered them to be somewhat uninteresting phenomena. His viewpoint shares commonalities with Malcolm Kendrick, namely talking a lot about how blood coagulability seems to drive atherogenesis. I'm going to argue that such a focus is interesting, but likely a little bit too myopic to explain the whole disease, particularly when we try to explain early lesions in atherogenesis. The observation that clotting factors are associated with outcomes can be explained by a hypothesis which includes coagulation as a key mechanism of progression, but that includes a distinct and interesting driver of damage, like immune activation. That doesn't imply that coagulation per se is the root cause of the disease, because a root cause which caused injury and subsequent atherogenesis via thrombi would be modulated by the coagulation factors, thus coagulation could easily be a contributing factor, and attempting to obsess over its parameters would in such case provide only kind of a, a band-aid fix, as Ivor Cummins says. For comparison, though, I, I find this work much more interesting than LDL, because LDL doesn't actually even independently associate with CVD outcomes, which makes it kind of unlikely that serum LDL concentrations alone can actually qualify even as a contributing factor of heart disease. Uh, Velikin, in his attempt to draw the progression tree of atherogenesis, grouped those key dysfunctions into uh, specific areas such as abnormal proliferation, abnormal permeation, and abnormal coagulation. And I think just focusing on one of these runs the risk of not fully explaining atherogenesis. And I've watched a couple of recent talks with Vladimir Subotin. He discusses the interesting idea that angiogenesis is a key driver of atherogenesis, or at least the lipid accumulation part of it. Essentially, angiogenesis exposes lipophilic proteoglycans within the inner arterial wall to lipid particles that would otherwise not be in close contact. This hypothesis is also discussed by David Diamond periodically on Twitter. I think the hypothesis is interesting, but is more of a primary mechanism than a cause per se. Hypotheses involving outside-in atherogenesis, like from the vasovasorum inwards, have yet to explain the localization of the disease, which seems to be adequately explained by blood interaction with the inner arterial wall. 
I think a combination of the outside-in hypothesis with the innate immune signaling hypothesis could provide a much more compelling story. For example, angiogenesis could be an attempt to support the immune activation and the immune activation itself could play a role in the lipophilic proteoglycan concentration in the extracellular matrix. Um, I'm going to take some time to chat with, uh, with him soon about that. So we'll call up to this point Foundations 2.5, and now we'll officially begin what we'll call Foundations 3 and discuss our hypothesis. Uh, and once again, the basic idea here is that, number one, endotoxemia and innate immune activation result from metabolic and gut dysfunction. Innate immune activation from endotoxemia drives atherogenesis and myocardial clinical manifestation. Thus, we can define atherogenesis as the proliferative and degenerative changes the artery in the arteries resulting from innate immune activation through endotoxemia. And yes, I have, we have refined this hypothesis slightly since the talk that Nick gave at Houston uh, to reflect more accurately a black box interpretation of the incompatible diet leading to endotoxemia and innate immune activation. Uh, there's a lot of nuance in that box, which we'll leave uh, for another time, and we definitely need to research more. So being intrepid citizen scientists, we really want to invalidate this hypothesis We'll start by discussing examples that might contradict this hypothesis, uh, and after we will cover the existing associations and other interesting tidbits we found in literature. This hypothesis predicts that cardiovascular disease without elevated inflammatory markers should not be seen. Uh, we have yet to find an example of this, but we're really interested if you, if you have any data points that, that seem to fit that. Yep. Another thing to investigate would be the existence of a disease which is associated with dramatically accelerated atherogenesis but is not fundamentally immunological or displays uh, immunologic pleiotropy. And this is best example illustrated with examples. So Malcolm Kendrick mentioned sickle cell anemia as a disease pattern that is associated with a galloping natural history of coronary atherosclerosis. Again, I stole that phrasing from Velikin because I liked it. Uh, when I first heard that, I said, oh shit, we're completely wrong, burn it all. But there are actually some interesting notes that I dug up afterwards. So if you Google sickle cell anemia inflammation, you actually get a number of PubMed results talking about the often ignored inflammatory component of sickle cell disease and discussing the association of sickle cell disease with inflammation. It's not clear that this association is limited to purely mechanical effects like abrasion. Uh, the major selective advantage to sickle cell anemia and the reason it still exists is that the heterozygous case seems to confer resistance to malaria. I think my friend mentioned that malaria may have killed as many as like half the humans that have ever lived. So this is obviously like an immune effect of the disease. And some diseases like these uh, associated with uh, market, and some diseases like these associate with a markedly different natural history of coronary atherosclerosis. In other words, the pathology differs somewhat markedly from what we find in non-carriers. Thus, the, the possibility exists that the differing pathology indicates a somewhat differing process. Another example here is Kawasaki's disease, which is also associated with a galloping history of atherosclerosis. Uh, and this disease is an acute inflammation of the arterial tissue, which is again consistent with the immune hypothesis of atherogenesis. And familial hypoclistrolemia associates with an accelerated natural history of coronary atherosclerosis. As we've talked, the lipoprotein system is responsible for clearing endotoxins, clotting factors, and other waste. So impaired clearance manifests as elevated LDL in serum, but also in higher levels of endotoxins. Commensurate uh, innate immune activation, clotting factors, and increased, increased coagulability. It's possible this impaired system has other immune effects as well, since LDL is known to be involved in immune processes. Uh, though the mechanics of the system are poorly understood, it's quite possible that people with familial hypercholesterolemia and lean mass hyperresponders have elevated LDL for very different reasons. 
FH has impaired clearance, which results in higher levels, whereas uh, higher net throughput of the system may result in elevated LDL and lean mass hyperresponders. An implicit assumption in much of Mendelian randomization and other work in this area is that we can assume zero pleiotropy if we see a mutation that makes LDL go up and its only effect will be to increase serum LDL. And that such a rise functions identically to an observed rise in LDL due to a dietary modification. And I think both of those assumptions are probably invalid. So the, these assumptions require validation for the mechanistic reason I just articulated. There are even multiple layers of pleiotropy. A particular gene locus can have pleiotropy, but the biological system itself can also display pleiotropy, like the example I gave where the lipoprotein system is involved in endotoxin and clotting factor clearance. The homozygous FH case is a very extreme example of a dysfunction in a fundamental metabolic component. So moreover, if the FH example were synonymous with dietary LDL modification, we would expect to see cardiovascular clinical manifestations in individuals like Nathan who see LDL levels on par with homozygous FH. Um, anyways, this is all to say that the FH data point supports the endotoxemia hypothesis of atherogenesis. And I actually conversed with someone on Twitter who on a, uh, he believes he's an LMHR, he's going to get back to me with his lipid numbers, but he's actually seen a resolution of clinical manifestations. So he'd previously been experiencing angina and after switching said that those symptoms have been improving somewhat, which I think those data points can be extremely powerful in, in understanding the effect of the disease because they'll be very sensitive since the clinical manifestations are already kind of occurring. And another thing we'd look for are case reports of myocardial clinical manifestations in individuals consuming LCHF or carnivorous diets, like the one I just talked about, um, who see dramatically elevated serum LDL. Again, in addition to that one, I'd love to get more data points here. So if anyone is able to provide data points on these, that would be very interesting. I'm suspicious, again, that the rate of myocardial clinical manifestations will approach zero in individuals who are able to resolve their endotoxemia and their metabolic health with dietary modification. But again, it's not necessarily clear that ketogenic diets are, and carnivorous diets resolve endotoxemia in every individual. So some people may require something additional, others may have particular sensitivities. It's possible that um, it's also possible that the benefit observed in people who get a benefit from such diets is primarily through the endotoxemia itself. Okay, so let's dive into the nuts and bolts of this hypothesis a bit more. Uh, so let's talk about how the innate, innate immune system functions. Uh, after all, we did call this foundations. Uh, the innate immune system is one of the oldest and most conserved parts of the immune system. It's around in all kinds of creatures and has seemed to be conserved across hundreds of millions of years. Uh, one of the main components of this is called the toll-like receptor, TLRs, and these were discovered in the late 1990s. Uh, humans tend to have six of these on the surface of cells and seven on the inside of the cell. And certain of these toll-like receptors are only expressed on a subset of organ or cell types. Um, these receptors have various ligands or things that bind to them. Uh, another name, uh, and these tend to be very old threats to the human body. These include things like bacteria, fungi, toxoplasmosa, gondii, and components of your own cells. Uh, so in aggregate, these are referred to as pathogen-associated molecular patterns or damage-associated molecular patterns. Uh, in our case, we're most interested uh, in the receptors which are responsible for detecting bacteria or bacterial components, and these are TLR2 and TLR4. Uh, when these receptors are activated by gram-negative bacteria, lipopolysaccharides, or gram-positive bacteria, lipotechoic acid, uh, a pro-inflammatory cascade is triggered by the activation of a protein called nuclear factor kappa B, or NF kappa B, 
which in turn leads to the upregulation of the transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-1-beta, interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. And these act as signaling molecules to alert the immune system of a problem, activating macrophages, potentially changing the composition of extracellular matrix, and all kinds of other uh, effects. So we know that the immune activation is intricately tied to the pathology of atherosclerosis, and we could and could easily explain many of the observations we have on it. Studies have shown that injecting endotoxins into rabbits results in thickened intimas and can cause fibrofatty lesions. Again, it's not clear that a thickened intima is necessarily pathological, but the observation is nevertheless interesting. So let's talk a little bit about hemodynamics. Uh, we could break down hemodynamics and a more detailed proposal of how endotoxins relate to hemodynamics as follows. Uh, digestion of fatty acids, which is the primary route by which endotoxins are absorbed, happens through the lymphatic system. They're packaged up into chylomicrons in the gut. They enter into uh, the lymphatic system. And that's quite possibly because the immune system is able to deal with any endotoxins as they make their way through the lymphatic system. Um, thus, immune or metabolic dysfunction at this step could modulate the amount of endotoxins absorbed. Uh, the resulting nutrients and pylomicrons are dumped directly into the thoracic duct, which directly supplies nutrients to the heart. So these components will first interact with the vascular tissue of the heart. Endotoxemia results in innate immune activation, particularly in the areas of turbulent slow blood flow in the arterial vessel. Uh, this hemodynamics results in blood stasis, recirculation, and prolonged interaction time with the endothelial surface, which contains uh, innate immune receptors like TLR4 and TLR2. This explains why atherosclerosis localizes first in such regions. Once this occurs, a growing lesion may alter the hemodynamics and produce lesions down the artery as kind of blood eddies and flows. If the integrity of the wall is compromised, insudations of these immunogenic components can result in lesions extending down the artery wall in the direction of flow. The aging process likely interacts with the hemodynamics and the immune component of this disease to augment the progression in interesting ways. It is possible that most of the localization of the disease can be explained by a combination of hemodynamics and the aging process and its effects on immune uh, activation. Uh, the interaction of blood with the walls results in signaling, which drives immune activation in some proportion to the amount of endotoxin, which itself will see postprandial elevation as digestion occurs. Note that no actual damage of the endothelium is required in order for immune signaling to occur. This is important because MJ Davies' identification that no obvious association exists between the evidence of endothelial damage and earlier lesions classified as AHA type 1 to 3. Uh, the immune signaling leads directly to many of the observations of atherogenesis, including vascular smooth muscle cell proliferation, changes in proteoglycan matrix due to immune activation, since proteoglycan changes are associated with the immune activation. Necrosis of the tissue can result from abnormal structural changes induced by proliferation or from high enough concentrations of endotoxins directly. As we progress towards later atherogenesis and possibly an early atherogenesis since microthrombi can be visualized, endothelial erosion and rupture of unstable plaques are all driven by immune activation. This can be demonstrated by the strong association between acute end-stage events and recent infectious burden of, for example, the respiratory system, since that tissue is both permeable and somewhat coupled to the cardiovascular system. For example, there's a 48 times hazard ratio for recent uh, pneumonia. Endotoxemia and innate immune activation also exerts influence on the heart's nervous and electrical control systems via some not yet totally understood interactions. Irregularities of 
in the nervous system may be responsible for a number of phenomena in atherogenesis and myocardial clinical manifestations through spasm and improper control. For example, coronary vasospasm can drive angina or even lead to sudden cardiac death. The changes induced in coronary vascular tone could influence hemodynamics transiently or even for longer periods if the stimulus were recurrent. This could further result in destabilization of a weakened plaque. There are a lot of associations that support this model. In fact, we haven't found many observations which are not supported by this model as we discussed earlier. And again, if you have any, please let us know. For example, cigarette smoke contains endotoxins which are introduced into the cardiovascular system via the lungs. Marijuana and other vaporizers have not been well evaluated at this point, but after a cursory search of the literature, uh, some do test positive for endotoxins while other may not, and this could vary batch to batch. The effectiveness of various drugs on perturbing the rate of myocardial clinical manifestations seems correlated to their immune pleiotropy. This is why certain drugs like evacitrapib didn't do anything while statins seem to help at least modulating the uh, rate of clinical events via effects on TLR4. Similarly, other anti-inflammatory medications have been observed having effects on coronary events, and just to underscore the potential breadth of the innate immune system in other diseases, Enbrel, which is a TNF-alpha inhibitor, was discovered to block Alzheimer's even though it, it doesn't actually cross the blood-brain barrier. And to dive into the statin story, a recent reanalysis of a statin trial incorporated genetic testing and compared the efficacy of statins between individuals with two different types of TLR4 receptor mutations. Those with a 299-GLY mutation had a relative risk benefit of 93%, whereas the relative risk reduction in people without the mutation was 36%, not to mention that the baseline event rate was substantially different, and the LDL reduction was not different between the groups. In other words, this effect was totally independent of the effect on LDL. The data point which support hypothesis of the primary mechanism of action of statins and the way in which they achieve any benefit is probably through toll-like receptor 4, not LDL reduction. And you can check out a Twitter thread that we'll put in the show notes that I have going through a whole host of cardiovascular drugs and talking about their pleiotropic properties. There are a growing number of data points on endotoxemia being greater in diabetics and unhealthy people and lower in healthy people and centenarians. In theory, this should correlate with immune surrogates and a reasonable combination of these surrogates might be an excellent proxy of metabolic health. Since the immune system is nonlinear, kind of to say the least, this explanation is sufficient to explain why different people get different combinations of disease, even if the etiology of all of them shares a lot of commonalities. The immune system is fascinating and complex. Much more research is going to be needed to understand these interactions and outcomes. And we have some quest open questions that we think would be interesting to answer. Uh, number one, what impact do dietary modifications have on endotoxemia? I think that would be a really great question to answer because it, it seems to be different for different people. Uh, we also need to know what the exact mechanism is and what the, the particular failure cascade is that results in serum endotoxemia and innate immune activation. Gabor has talked pretty extensively about that on, on Twitter if you've been following him. Uh, are there any other immune ligands or factors that are modulating this process in addition to endotoxins? We also want to know why certain drugs have impacts and not others, despite having similar immune properties. We also want to know what are the ways that pathology could help further inform this hypothesis. What can we look at in a plaque, or what signs in the tissue would we expect or could we use to further, under further our understanding of this mechanistically. And what 
are the aspects of aging that interplay with immune activation. We already talked about one with menopause and women, but there are probably clearly others that, that are influencing this process unseen. And are there any clear black swans uh, to this hypothesis? Uh, and unfortunately, answering that question will likely require that we refine the hypothesis to the point that we have some sort of a clear diagnostic marker. And on that note... Uh, so. Finding a diagnostic marker will, I think, be one of, it was my New Year's resolution, but I think that a reasonable goal of our work would be to find a blood test or series of tests in combination with a, with a procedure that would clearly track this dysfunction. It would be interesting to even see what off-the-shelf tests would do in a, in a postprandial test designed to measure the effects on endotoxemia. So um, one of the protocols that has been used is just for people to drink heavy whipping cream, which produces kind of, for a given metabolic health, the maximum amount of endotoxin burden through the absorbed saturated fat, which is a simple test we can do and then measure the, the, the uh, cytokine markers afterwards. And let's hope that that doesn't happen in carnivores because I like my heavy whipping cream, <laughs> as do many other folks. So I'm excited to see the results of this. So I think a reasonable exploratory experiment that we would like to get to is uh, having a, a panel of three uh, unhealthy folks with autoimmune issues or diabetes, uh, two healthy people or apparently healthy people eating a standard American or omnivorous diet, and then three folks eating zero-carb carnivore diets uh, with good adherence. And we could run kind of a standard postprandial experiment like we uh, described and, and collect a great sufficiency of uh, samples. We can then kind of just take multiple vials of blood to get a number of milliliters of serum and then run them through a, an array of different cytokines um, that we see in the vicinity of the TLR4 pathway. And then we can then look at the comparison between groups and between individuals in the group. And we might hypothesize that carnivores would be low and homogeneous and that as people got more unhealthy, we'd see higher levels and higher variation, possibly both in each marker and that some individuals people might have higher levels of cytokine A than, than others, but also in the relative uh, response of different markers. So one unhealthy person might have cytokine A higher than B and, and another person have the opposite. Uh, it would be further interesting to look at the association between these tests and con more conventional tests like lipid ratios or insulin. Uh, there's a possibility that there'll be some divergence and that the correlation won't be strong, which would explain some of the incredible heterogeneity in these more conventional tests but it's something we'd like to look into. Anyways, thank you all so much for joining us on Foundations 3. Um, we have a number of interviews that we'd, we'd like to do moving forward. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about it. No, I think uh, let us know if you like this format. Uh, let us know what you want us to talk about or look into next, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing your feedback on this. Thank you all so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Root Causing Health Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. Also visit us online at rootcausinghealth.com to learn more, and please consider supporting our research on Patreon. Patreon.